And in that gospel, what we've been seeking to do is to get to know Jesus better. That's been our objective in all of this, to get to know our Lord as He truly is and to come to grips with who we are in light of Him. So we've been seeing the gospel and how that gospel penetrates us and changes us from the inside out. But today we're going to leave aside the Gospel of John just for a couple weeks because the session, the the elders of this church, have asked me to spend this week and next exploring what the Bible has to say about Christian stewardship in general and giving in particular. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that today and next week. If you are a member of this church or a regular attendee of it, you will have by now received a letter in the mail and also our monthly newsletter just outlining a little bit of our current situation here at First Presbyterian Church in light of our budget and in light of our ministry goals. And the reason why we sent that out was twofold. We sent it out to you because, first of all, we believe that open communication is a pretty good thing. It's good for you to be aware of what's going on, aware of where we're at and aware of where we need to be. But it was also an encouragement and a challenge to you to to participate in all of the good things that God is currently doing here and that we are praying that he will continue to do in the future. And even as we look over the course of the history of this church, this is a nearly 120-year-old church. And this church has had a tremendous impact on countless lives. It's had a tremendous impact on this community, and we have sent people to various corners of our state and our nation and to the very ends of the, war, the earth to bring the gospel out. People's lives have been changed. They've gone from darkness to light. They've gone from hell to heaven because of the ministry of this church, because of how God has used it over the course of 120 years. And we can even look over a short history of this church. Just this past year, 2010, We've seen many people, just like we saw today, come and say, this is the place where I want to be my church family. There's something about this place where the gospel's here, where there's community here, where there's something genuine and authentic that's taking place at this church. And I want to join with this church. We've seen a number of people do that over the course of the past several months. We've had the privilege of seeing a number of covenant children in this congregation be baptized. We've seen conversions happening in this congregation. We've seen increased attendance in every ministry that we have in this church, which numbers really mean nothing at the end of the day. But what, they are, what we're noticing underneath the numbers that we've seen here is that people really attaching to the gospel. The light bulb is going on. They're delighting themselves in Christ. And that's something to be thankful for. And right now we have children in the nursery. We have children in this congregation at the moment. We have people who, kids who, who we're praying that will grow up in this church. And in 20 years, 40 years... 60 years from now, when most of us are long gone, I'm praying and the elders are praying that they will be able to look back upon their childhood in this church and look back upon their personal history in the light of this church and be able to tell their children and their grandchildren, look at what has happened in this congregation, First Presbyterian Church. There have been beautiful things that happened and we want to continue that heritage for another 120 years if the Lord should hesitate in coming back until then. And so all of that brings us to talking about this issue of Christian stewardship and giving. The purpose of this is not to manipulate you. It's not to coerce you. It's to challenge us all to join in in what God is doing here. And that brings us to the passage that we're going to explore this morning, which is a very short one. It is one verse, but it is a beautiful verse. And I read it to you now. 
from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. I want to lay all my cards out on the table in terms of my personal desire for my own life and my desire for your life and my goal as the pastor of this congregation. So here it is. This is my desire. My desire for my life and for your life is that we would all gain such a full, robust, thorough, comprehensive understanding of the gospel that not one point of minutia in our life goes untouched by it. That, that, that the gospel actually touches and illuminates and transforms every single sphere of our life. That there are no parts of our life that are just dead. No parts in our life to where we're satisfied with the immaturity and the brokenness and the indifference and the rebellion of it. We're seeing... Christ enter into all of those contexts of our lives and we're seeing Him transform it. And that means that we need to have a clearer vision of God, doesn't it? It means that I'm praying in my life and in yours that we would see God and His holiness and that His holiness would be more astonishing to us. That His grace would be more amazing. That His love would be more personal. That His truth would be more delightful to us. That that is how we would see God. That we would see Him as wholly other than us in every way. And then we would look at ourselves. We would see that we're not God. We would see how short we fall of Him. That we would see that our fundamental problems in life are not unhappiness being unfulfilled. Those are symptoms of our greatest problem in life, but they're not our greatest problem. That our greatest problem in life is not problems with our health, not a corrupt government, not injustice, not poverty, not the environment. As important as all those things are, those are not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is our abandonment from God, our alienation from God our hostility from God. We need to come to an acute personal knowledge of just how profound that is. To, to see that sin is our problem, that hardness to God is our problem, that indifference and self-justification are the issues eating away at our life, and that's something that we inherited not only from our birth parents, but from our first parents. It's just part of our DNA. It's part of what we do. It's how we do life. And that's our condition. And yet, as we confess this morning, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That that, that flames at the center of our life. That, that that becomes what we delight ourselves in. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ came and He lived perfectly tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin, never having one motivation in all of his life that was anything other than the glory of his Father and the good of his people. We're seeing Jesus like that. 
We're seeing Him as we sang in this third song this morning, how deep the Father's love for us. There's, there's a substitution going on there. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That is the language of substitution. It's that Jesus substituted Himself in our place. In my place condemned He stood. We're starting to see that. It's grabbing us at the level of our souls. And we're seeing that through faith in Him, we experience a fundamental change of status. We go from guilty to righteous. We go from condemned to justified. We go from alien to child. We go from indebtedness to redeemed. Everything that we deserved in the gospel, Jesus received on that cross. Everything that we deserved, Jesus received. And everything that Jesus deserved, we have received from Him. Grace, truth, the hope of glory. And so, what does that do? What does that gospel do in our life? Well, it moves us out of ourselves. It moves us out of ourselves. It moves us to obedience, to faithfulness, to godliness, to a life of holiness, to, to stewardship over what God has so graciously provided for us. And we live that way because the grace that we have received in the gospel is a costly grace. It's not a cheap grace. It's, it's not a plastic grace. It's a, it's a costly grace. It's the kind of grace that costs the Father His only begotten Son. It's, it's the kind of grace that cost Jesus His very own life in order that we could have that change of status, in order that we could be reconciled to God. That's what He's done for us. And so it is a costly grace. And understanding that costly grace changes everything. There is no man, no woman, no boy, no girl who has ever truly understood the grace of the gospel and has gone on to live as if that gospel made no difference in their lives. And so that's what I'm praying happens in my life. and happens in your life as well. See, the, the whole Christian life is to be a life that's built upon the gospel. It, that's not your fire insurance policy alone that you sign on to when you become a Christian. It's, it's what resonates throughout the whole course of your life. It's what touches your whole life, which means that life becomes an ongoing cycle of confronting our sin, confessing it, turning away from it, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, putting it to death, and embracing Christ and enjoying Him and treasuring Him and pursuing Him. That's what we do. The, the, the Christian life is not about the fulfillment of a moral duty in order that we can get into the good graces of God so that He'll love us a little bit more. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is saying, we've received such abundant grace. How can I live in any other way other than turning over my whole life to Him and surrendering all over to Him? That's stewardship of what God has given to us. And so, with that in view... 
the main thing that I want us to see this morning is this. It's that any motivation for stewardship in any part of our lives that comes out of a motivation other than the gospel will fall wildly short. It'll fall wildly short. Any motivation for stewardship will fall wildly short if it is not fundamentally rooted in God's gospel promises to us. See, the, 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 the reason why Christians are called to give, to be generous with our whole lives, is not because the pastor and the elders and the leadership of the church provide some kind of a professional service that you provide them some kind of compensation for, just as it is any other kind of business. That's not what we're about. What we're about is participating in the gospel life, participating in the life of Jesus Christ and in the death of Jesus Christ and in the mission that He has come to perform by His Holy Spirit through His people. That's what we're calling, the, uh, to, uh, calling you to participate in and to join in. And it's about laying down everything in our life for that sake. It's about laying over our car, our house, our time, our energy, our resources, our talents, our finances. It's about giving all of that over for the sake of making Jesus look beautiful as He really is. That's what it's all about. It's about treasuring Christ deeply and responding to it with stewardship over what He's given to us. And that's why this verse that we explored together this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 has everything to do with that. It has everything to do with stewardship because it has everything to do with the gospel. And I learned this in a profound way through growing up in our household, watching our family's favorite television show, The Cosby Show. Do you remember that? One of the all-time great television sitcoms. Hilariously funny, but underneath all of the humor, tremendous life lessons. And I remember the parents. It was Heathcliff and Claire Huxtable, I believe. Cliff was a physician and Claire was an attorney and they had four kids, five kids, something like that. And I think it was the son, Theo Huxtable, was asking for something from his parents. He wanted something from his parents. And, and he comes up to his parents and says, come on, Dad, we're rich. And Claire and Cliff just kind of look at each other with a smirky smile. And Cliff says back to his son, Theo, we're rich, you're poor. <laughs> and the lights went on for me because I saw that in my own life because every single thing that I enjoyed, every single opportunity that I had, every article of clothing that I wore, every sport that I played, all of the stuff that I had in life, and that the stuff that I owned, I didn't actually own it. My, my parents owned it. They had given over their lives for my joy, for my well-being, for my good. Every parent knows this. Every parent knows this. You know that if you're going to do something for the good and for the well-being of your child, it's going to cost you something. You're going to incur some kind of loss in order that your child might have some kind of gain. 
And folks, that's a picture of the gospel because that's what it's all about. It's about Jesus coming and laying down His life in order that we might have the gain of glory, in order that we might be reconciled to God. That's what Jesus does for us. He becomes poor for our sake in order that we might become rich. You have to understand the the position of Jesus Christ before the cross. He's He's in glory. He's in face-to-face union with His Heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit. It is a perfect, harmonious relationship with nothing that even begins to resemble anything that looks like brokenness. And yet, because of His deep love for His children, He comes and He's born to an unwed, teenaged mother in a wretched, heinous, stinky, third world cattle stall. And the political situation into which he's born is a mess, and so his family gets exiled to Egypt. He eventually comes back. He begins to preach and teach, and he gets thrown out of every place that he opens his mouth. He's constantly running for his life. That's the story of Jesus Christ until the cross. He's constantly running for his life because people are seeking to put him to death. They misunderstand him. They misinterpret him. Have you ever experienced that? That that was Jesus' whole life. And then he finally gets arrested. He's, He's taken in. He gets nothing that even begins to resemble a fair trial. He gets beaten. He's forced to carry his own cross. He gets mocked. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They they nail him to a cross between two criminals. He's getting mocked. He's getting verbally abused. He's hanging on the cross Naked is the day he was born. The shame involved in that. It's the most painful way a person can die, and yet that was not even the slightest bit of the deepest pain that he was experiencing on that cross. Because this beautiful fellowship that he had had with his father was all falling apart. Because he was looking at Darren Stone's sin, all of that junk, in his life, and all of that junk that he would do later on in his life, and that he'll do even later today, and he was taking all of that, and it was being poured out on Jesus Christ. He was taking my guilt, and he was taking your guilt, if you believe in him. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And Jesus Christ took Paul's guilt. Jesus became not just a sinner. He became the worst sinner that ever lived. The the worst sinner that there ever was. And, And the Father could not stand to look upon that. So for the first time in all of history, the Father turns His face away from His Son. The, the, the countenance of the Father becomes one of a smile to one of a frown. And the unmitigated wrath of the Father gets poured out upon His beloved Son so that it wouldn't be poured out upon us. 
That's what Jesus' poverty for your sake in order that you might become rich looks like. That's the only way in which you can get the riches of his glory. It is your only hope in life and in death. You have no hope apart from that. You have no hope. You want to stand on your own merits, upon your own works, upon your own goodness, you're welcome to do so, but you have no hope. Your only hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people in the gospel, taking upon himself our guilt. He becomes poor for our sake in order that we might become rich. And what profound, practical applications there are for us as we leave here today, as we go about our lives. Because what it tells us is that we have to come to grips with our own personal inherent poverty. We, we have to see ourselves as the poor man, as the poor woman, as impoverished more than any person that we would ever see on the news in Haiti or Nigeria, or Bangladesh. Vastly more impoverished than that. Blake Henderson and I were in Hattiesburg a couple of weeks ago. We were coming back. We were just sharing some of our own backgrounds, our own family backgrounds, our own lives. And I was sharing with him a little bit about how I grew up. In the suburbs, everybody had perfectly manicured lawns. We paid for the, the lawn man to come and, and handle the the gardening, everybody had a swimming pool, everybody bought a new car every three to five years, the least educated people on the street had bachelor's degrees, most of them had masters and beyond. It was Mayberry for all intents and purposes. I thought that's just how people lived until I kind of entered into the real world and realized that that wasn't so much the case. We would always joke that if you needed to give birth or have a, a, a bypass surgery, or need chemotherapy, or get a prescription filled, or get your taxes done, or need financial advice, you would never have to leave our street. And that, that's, just, that's just what it was like growing up. And I thought that was how things were. Until I was 14 years old and found myself at a youth group meeting of all things. I never went to church. I mean, I hadn't been in a church in since I was four or five years old at that point. And that was where I heard the gospel for the first time. That's where I came face to face with who Jesus is and with who I was in light of that. And I came to realize that even though I was a person of tremendous, abundant privilege, purely just because of the context that, that God allowed me to be born into, nothing in and of my own self, even though I was a person of tremendous privilege, at the end of it all, I was chronically impoverished. Chronically impoverished. There was nothing I could do to get myself out of that and, and less, other than resting upon what Christ had done for me in the gospel. And in so doing, I came to see that he not only took an indebtedness that I had in my life that never in a gazillion lifetimes I could ever repay back, he not only took that indebtedness and brought it back to zero and forgave it all, he told me that his mercies are new every morning. 
that he was just going to pour mercy after mercy and grace after grace upon my life, day after day, and that there was no way that I could ever deplete that, that, that it could ever get washed away, that I could find myself in debt again, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and nothing can separate me from his love. And that's what I came to see, that I was once poor, without hope, without God in the world, and I had become rich. That's what he did for me. And so a lot of people will say that if you've received grace like that and there's nothing you can do to diminish the account, then that's just an excuse for sin. It's an excuse to live as you please because you're just going to get grace. God's going to forgive you anyway. So what difference does it make in how you live your life? Eat, drink, and be merry. My friends, to believe that and then to live like that shows a complete lack of understanding of the costliness of the grace that we've received in the gospel. See, Christianity is about marriage. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Bible, that the Bible begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve and ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's about a marriage. It's about a, a groom coming and pursuing his bride and giving over his life for her. We, we see this in earthly marriage, that, that what a husband is called to do is, is to marry his bride despite all of her flaws, despite the blemishes, the parts of her body and her soul that she would prefer to leave covered up, leave behind the curtain, leave unexposed, the, 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 the parts of her life that are not particularly beautiful, and he's called to love her, to pursue her, to lay down his life for her in a way that in some manifestation resembles the way in which Christ laid down his life for his church. And that's what the husband is called to do. He, he gives over his life. If that's what he's doing, if he's faithful in that, if he's constantly pursuing her best interest, if he's constantly loving her and constantly being faithful to her and constantly giving himself over to her, then how in the world can the wife say that it's okay for her to go out and commit adultery? That's not an understanding of the love of her husband to her. That's a complete misuse of it. And see, in Christianity, that's what we get. Christ came and married us while we were poor. Not because of what we had to offer him, but despite that we had nothing to offer him, but our junk. And he comes and he marries us. Not because of our beauty, but despite our mess. And so out of response to that, how could we in any other way live other than giving over our lives to him? Then saying, what I have, the opportunities that I have, the resources that I have, the things that I have, the talents that I have, they're not ultimately on my, my own. They ultimately belong to God. They're for use for his glory, for the sake of his people, for his good. See, just as the wife who's totally secure in her husband's love for her begins to reciprocate that love to him, that's what we have, only in a perfect way in the gospel. We're called to give over our lives because we've been made completely secure. And this has everything to do with stewardship. It has everything to do with it. So I want to close by just asking you two questions. Here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. 
One is this. How does what I do with my money, my financial resources, reflect what it is that I most fear? How does what you do with your financial resources reflect what you most fear? Because I'll tell you what it reflects in my life. I fear losing the comfort and the security that whatever financial resources I have bring me. I fear losing that. There are a lot of things in my life that I would prefer not to give up or cut back on. I don't want to cut back on those things because I enjoy them. They're they're sources of of happiness and, and contentment in my life. Plus, they're bills to pay. There are financial obligations and responsibilities to pay. And so I fear losing the comfort and I fear losing the security. But, but the fear of losing the comfort and security that money can buy can so often show us ultimately what our comfort and security lies in, which is our stuff, which is, which is our, our financial future, which is all of those aspects of our life, our, our material possessions. Look, the point is not to call you and me to give irresponsibly. That's not the point. The point is that we would learn to give over our lives sacrificially. That that there would be some measure of sacrifice. Listen, when was the last time that your giving of your life caused some change in your lifestyle? where the way in which you give said, I'm going to have to buy less of a car or less of a house or take less of a vacation or delay it or cut back on some form of entertainment in my life. When when was the last time that your giving looked like that? See, if, if Jesus gives over his whole life to us, then it seems like the gospel-centered life would, would look like we're giving over some aspect of our life that looks like sacrifice. And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. What, how does what I do with my money reflect what I most fear? And here's the last one. How does what I choose and what I do reflect what it is that I love the most? How is what I choose and what I do reflect what I love the most? If you look in this passage briefly at verses 2 and 3, you'll see that Paul is talking about this Macedonian church that's under oppression. They're, they're under a tense impression. They're in a, a recession that is just chronic. They are being persecuted by all sorts of culture despisers. And yet, this is what Paul has to say about them in verse 2. He says that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. All the odds were stacked against them. 
life was painful. And yet they looked at the churches in places where they didn't even speak the same language as those other churches and were saying, how can we help? How can we be involved in the relief of the saints? How can we be involved in the mission of the gospel? How can we be involved in the good of the church? And you see that they give willingly. There's a cheerfulness to their giving. It seems unreal. It seems absolutely unreal. Who does that? See, we can be like that. And that can go from being radical to us to being normal. And it becomes normal when we see our poverty. And yet we see the riches that Jesus Christ has supplied for us in the gospel. And it changes everything. And so the desire I have for myself and for you is that we would become these cheerful givers of every facet of our lives because Christ has so freely and abundantly and cheerfully given to us. Let's think about that as we go to him in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this challenging and convicting passage of Scripture. But it is not only challenging and convicting, it is wildly encouraging because it shows us our condition and it shows us the hope that we have, the remedy for our condition. That though you were rich, you became poor for our sake in order that we might become rich. Oh, let that change us. Let it make a difference in the way in which we live, that we see our lives as belonging wholly to you for your good, for your glory. Do that in us and do that through us. For Jesus' sake, amen.